Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Okay, so uh, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with Ryan Young. I don't even know how to how to introduce you, Ryan. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you've had uh, you've done everything from being on Sea Shepherd, you know, going on on fighting whalers on the high seas with Paul Watson to uh, teaching uh, for decades, uh, as do I at John Abbott College to doing all sorts of uh, political stuff, environmental stuff. Uh, you've run for office. You've, uh, I, I don't even know where to begin. So why don't you introduce yourself to our, uh, our listeners? Sure. Um, well, I guess uh, to, make, to make it somewhat short and simple, I, I'm, I'm a teacher at John Abbott College in the Media Arts Department, and I teach radio production and video production and then some cinema courses, which some, you know, I actually try to bring environmentalism in through um, like my course, Cinema and Society, which is looking at animals and nature, the representation of those things in cinema over, over history and how it has changed over time. It's also an excuse for me to just talk about environmental issues in the class. But otherwise, I'm a, I'm a city councillor in my little town of St. Anne de Bellevue, which is the town that John Abbott College is, is in. And, you know, uh, I grew up in this town. My dad was a teacher at John Abbott College, Bert Young, who taught sociology for 30 years. So, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of one of those people that stuck around where they were born. And um, I, although I was not born here, I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, but we moved here or we moved to Montreal at least when I was two years old. And then shortly thereafter, we moved to St. Anne de Bellevue. And, um, and I've been involved in a lot of environmental activism over the years. These days I have little kids, so I don't do a lot of activism uh, anymore. But, um, and of course, during COVID, I don't do very much environmental activism. But um, I still support all those things. But yeah, I was a crew member on, on Sea Shepherd. And um, I've stayed in touch with the organization and here and there I've lent a hand where I could. And, um, and I've also been involved in trying to protect local green spaces 
And a lot of that activism happened with a, with a grassroots group called the, the Green Coalition or the Coalition Verte. And, you know, uh, you and I, of course, we, we share our, uh, a big interest in, in natural history. And I am a naturalist, uh, and that's what I've sort of, it's been my main passion all my life. I started out as a bird watcher and then, you know, went on from there and just got interested in all the different facets of the local ecology. And I like to take a lot of pictures of, of uh, birds and insects and plants. And, and that's what I share a lot of on Instagram. And, of course, I, I see you doing a lot of the same, John. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, that's what fascinates me. I mean, I, I follow your Instagram and I encourage we'll post that on the uh, website with this episode. I encourage everybody to follow Ryan Young on Instagram. He is absolutely just it brings me so much joy following your stuff. And it's it, what comes through is you say, you know, you're one of those people who, uh, who stuck around and never in one place, but there's a lot of people that stay in one place for years, decades, um, and they never really become a part of the place. They never really get to know the place. And they, their conception of the environment, and this is something that I talk about with my students very often, and I'm sure I, I can see that you're doing the same thing with, uh, with your kids, and I did the same thing with my sons, is that very even people who think of themselves as, as environmentalists and think of themselves as caring about the environment, for them the environment is something that happens over there. You know, it's it's on an eco tour in Costa Rica during their vacation time, or it's out at the cottage. It's um, they don't think of the island of Montreal as being the environment, or even the the suburbs surrounding the island. The environment is something that happens over there, which is one thing that comes through in in all of your work, in your pictures, in your videos, in your your activism is that you uh, clearly don't have that view. And I'm wondering, how did you come to that view of environmentalism? Because when we were, you know, when we were coming up, that was not the prevailing view at all. Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, there were some formative experiences. So um, we did, speaking of cottages, my parents used to rent a cottage uh, in eastern Ontario, uh, I guess about an hour north of Kingston, Ontario. And oh, that's beautiful country. And in, in that, that's like uh, North Cumberland, or what is it called? Well, well, I guess it's like Canadian Shield. It's the Frontenac County, and there's yeah. a provincial park near there called Frontenac Provincial Park. And um, you know, there's a lot of cottages out there, and but the, you know, there's a lot of rugged nature as well. And um, so we would we would go there for I mean because my dad was a teacher at John Abbott and you know my mother was able to to work things in her job we would go there for sometimes what seemed like the entire summer we would just wow. leave St Anne de Bellevue and go there for for all of July and all, all of August typically and um, you know it was uh, very formative and and I was probably. I don't know, seven or eight years old when we started going there. Actually, I was probably young, younger than that. But when I started to explore the nature around where the cottage was, was probably when I was about eight or nine years old. And then 
uh, you know, my, my uncle and aunt, they had a few books on nature. So I would pick those out of the, the bookcase when I was visiting their cottage, because it was really right, right next door to the one we were renting. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd see something in the book and then I would see it on the lake or in the marsh. And, and, you know, I suddenly realized, oh, there was a lot to see and explore. So I did a lot of that. Of course, also. In were, there any, were there any uh, fox snakes that were they, was, or is that too far east? It's too far east, actually. As far as I know, there are no fox snakes in that area. There are okay. big, there are big black rat snakes. Which, oh, wonderful. <laughs> I never encountered one when I was a kid. I saw one years later in that part of the the world but uh but I, I i never saw one i mean saw i saw a lot of water snakes which was very cool oh they're amazing any and do the massasaga rattlesnakes get that far east again no they're more they're more on the bruce peninsula yeah so, yeah. so well, i've seen them all the way up i've seen them all the way up in the muskoka lakes region in fact like around uh lake huron yes i think that's uh, right yeah. yeah like a lot of them you know like like you know you could see there were as in places they were as plentiful as as garter snakes. You could Whoa. find like 10, wow. 10, 12 of them, you know, on one path kind of thing. It was just wild. They were all over the place. It's apparently the highest concentration of rattlesnakes in the world is in Ontario. It's not wow. in like Texas or California or anything. It's in Ontario. It's really weird. I had no uh, idea. Wow. So that's, yeah, I know. It's pretty, it's quite amazing. But so there was, so you would have saw, what kind of things did you see uh, at that country place? Well, I guess, you know, there was the fact that there were beavers on the lake. And I remember going up to the beaver lodges and listening to the babies inside, you know, making noises. Oh, that's Uh, amazing. That's it. There were loons. There was you know, great blue herons, but there were also a lot of hawks. So there were northern harriers or marsh hawks nesting in the marsh. There was a broadwing hawk nest, which I discovered. And then I had a a telescope, like a spotting scope, from my scout troop back here in St. Anne de Bellevue, because David Bird was the leader of my scout troop, and he was this pretty famous ornithologist. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's it. And so he lent us uh, like a pretty expensive, you know, seven or $800 spotting scope for watching birds. There was a little group of us, maybe f- me and four other boys. And uh, we would trade it around. Like I would keep it for a month and the other guy would take it for the next month. And so I had it with me up, up at the cottage and I was able to watch the comings and goings of a broadwing hawk nest right up close with that spotting scope and just hiding myself with a piece of green burlap over my head. That is wild. With a little hole, you know, to put the scope through. Do you see it like bringing food and things like that? Absolutely. I I saw, you know, um, I saw it bringing robins and rabbits. And when I was speaking to this woman who was an expert in hawk biology, she was saying that was quite different for Broadway hawks because they're typically... Uh, bringing more frogs and snakes, and I saw them bringing a lot of birds and and um, mammals. So. That's uh, interesting. Well, I think they they very often. My impression is that they have they have something that is roughly equivalent to culture. 
Mm-hmm. And so what they, you know, what they were taught by their, by their mother, or by their father, what was brought to them and what was available when they were young, it seems like they just keep going back for that, you know, first, you know, and, and so it can, it, it's quite weird. Like if they get used to having a certain diet, it's like a, a kid who's picky and only eats like four things. Like if they, if that's what was available when they were young, for one reason or another, they tend to uh, just keep going for that, even if there's other things available until until they're not. It's uh, it, it's very you know it's interesting. Like we're we're all creatures of habit, right? And whatever is easy. For sure, and I believe you know? animals have culture. I don't think that humans are the only ones with with a thing called culture. It's so obvious to me. Yeah, it's definitely obvious to me when it comes to uh, to certain animals. I mean, clearly things like killer whale, whales have culture. You can't just kind of take a killer whale from one area and you know say, oh, we're going to close down this big aquarium or the zoo and put this killer whale back out, you know, just anywhere because. Uh, they won't know how to speak the language. They won't know how to communicate with, with these other killer whales. So it's it's definitely true with a lot of, um, I mean, obviously true with whales and with a lot of primates and monkeys. I, I guess it gets more confusing with other ones. Well, definitely birds. I remember talking to this, uh, when I was a kid, I, uh, I worked at a pet store for a long time. And I remember this, really experienced uh, bird breeder told me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. I've, I've actually never really looked into to see if this is true. Maybe this is like some fake, fake news lodged in my head. Uh, but she said that um, not all, um, not all budgies were born with the knowledge of how to build a nest that uh, some were, some had the instinct and some didn't. And, but because they lived in large groups, it, they could benefit from uh, kind of something like culture, like community knowledge. So the ones that knew how to build a nest would uh, build a nest and the other ones would watch and imitate the behavior and then it would be fine. And so she had her budgies, uh, her breeding space for them was kind of like a, a whole room in a house, like a small, not a, like a, not a big room, but like a room dedicated to the budgies and all the floor was with, uh, was covered with news, newspaper. And they had, it was, you know, crazy. Like, like about a hundred of them in there, like flying around big, like budgie party. And she said, uh, this is why a lot of times people will buy a male and a female, put them in a cage at home and say, uh, okay, I'm going to try and breed them. And they would, they would breed and then the female would just drop the eggs and they would just like break on the bottom. She wouldn't, even when they put nesting materials, she wouldn't know how to make the nest. And they said, well, you know, uh, it's because she just happens to be one of the ones that doesn't know how to make a nest. Does that sound plausible to you? Absolutely. No, that makes so much sense. Uh, And I mean, I do know that they were a species or they are in nature, a very gregarious species, right? They're in massive massive flocks. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you've also here, you've seen all sorts of things. I mean, I've shared lots of pictures of yours of owls 
where I remember a couple of years ago, you were just seeing in the nature park that goes from uh, St. Anne de Bellevue to goes into a little bit of Kirkland, Lance Alon. Yeah. Yeah. You were seeing owls and all. Where do you find these things? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, that area of Lance Alon has always had owl activity and the Arboretum as well. The Arboretum, you know, Many times I've seen great horned owls and barred owls in the in the Morgan Arboretum. I mean, sometimes they, it's just a quick uh, sight of them, you know, flying by or being flushed by by crows. But every every eight or nine, I guess seven or eight, nine, ten years, there's an eruption of great gray owls that happens in the winter time, and they come down uh, from kind of northwestern Canada, and they come into the south of Canada and the southeastern part of Canada. And they are very, very uh, tame, it seems, uh, or they just don't see humans as um, as an immediate threat or th- that's just the way they, they are. It's their personality, whatever. But you can get extremely close to great gray owls. They will wow. eventually fly off once you're, you know, kind of right underneath wherever they're perched. But it's amazing how close you can get. So, and I remember when I was only 12, 13, 14 years old, there was a year like that in the winter of, I think, 83, 84. And um, they were all over Ile Perot, and there was some in the Arboretum, and especially in Ile Perot, in areas now that are mostly developed. Um, I would go and see these great gray owls. And I remember with one friend, we walked up to one that was sitting on a post on a farm fence post. And so we were, you know, our eye level was eye level with the, with the, with the owl and the owl did not fly away until we were like, you know, maybe less than a meter away, four feet away. And I remember we got, we got hit in the face with its wing as it flew off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this so that, that that owl has always been my fav- one of my favorite birds in general. And I remember just before that winter, it was almost mystical. I had received a book about the great gray owl at Christmas, and I was ex- particularly fascinated by them looking at my bird books. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, that winter, they're all over here, and it's a rare event. And uh the That's first one, the thing. first one was sighted on McDonald campus. So. I I saw the closest I've got to one was I was at the Morgan Arboretum. I was leading a a class actually from Abbott, a class on a kind of a nature walk in the Arboretum, and there had been the previous day there had been really really strong winds. Okay, and I guess the winds had knocked um, a chick. Well, I mean, this was like a very, a great horned owl, like a young one had been knocked out of a nest. That That's the theory, at least, what happened. But, and it was just there, like behind some bushes, and it started like squawking and squawking. And I'd never seen a baby one before. And of course, uh, you know, you know this, of course, but probably a lot of our listeners will be like me. I, I had no, they don't look anything like an owl when they're that age, like this thing was like about the size of a chicken and it had a face that looked much more like, I don't know, I guess like you would stereotypically think of like a hawk or something. It didn't have like the flat face of an, an owl. It is, 
it was just a weird looking. It didn't did not look like it like a little version of an adult. It looked like a completely different thing. Right? I know. And, uh, I just looked down, and this thing was like not scared of me at all. It looked like it was kind of calling for parents. I looked around to see if there's parents around anywhere. They were nowhere to be found, and um, so I I called up Chris Cloutier. Uh, who you, you probably know and yeah, know him. and I called him up and I said like you know what should I do and he said well can you pick it up and put it in your bag and bring it to the front office <laughs> so I I put a bunch of leaves in my bag put the owl inside my bag and brought it back to the the office and I think I think he said uh, it was not it was not damaged in any way that they uh, they just fed it a little bit um, and it was able to fly off on its own, you know, just a, a couple of days later. Like it didn't take very long. It was almost it was almost done with its infancy. It just probably got knocked out uh, at the nest the last minute. And it, because it was so close to being, it's called fledged, right? Is that? Yeah, that's right. Fledged when they fledged. leave the nest. Yeah. Yeah. He said probably because it was so close to being fledged, the parents would, were just like, you know, fuck it, you're on your own. <laughs> like, get a job. <laughs> like, they probably just said, okay, you, you're good. <laughs> like, That's and it. It, yeah, and just left it. So, I mean, are they normally one at a time, or do they have, like, a couple of babies at a time? Yeah, no, usually it's a, it's a clutch of two or three, you know? Okay. And um, I, think, I think it could sometimes be more, but typically that's what I've seen. Wow. And um, this thing was big. I'll show you a picture of it later on. I was like, I took, but it, it was big. I mean, so that a nest that could have three of them in it must be a really, really big nest. Yeah, they, they do make quite large nests. And, and in fact, what they do is they, they take over an old hawk nest, usually an old red-tailed hawk nest, or uh, they, they enlarge a crow nest or something like that. Wow. Yeah, there's... Um, there's a place that we go to on Nuns Island in the, the, what remains of the wild bit. It's so, you know, so sad. Cause I, when I was a kid growing up in Verdun, we would cross the Champlain bridge and go to Nuns Island and Nuns Island was completely wild. Like it was wild. Uh, just, it was amazing. It was a bird sanctuary and there were some houses on it, but more than half the island was just was just completely to and we're talking like it had gone to the point where it was you know what they call like like mature growth there was beech trees and kind of this forest had gone through many stages it was these massive massive trees uh, well, I, anyway. I used to go there myself uh really that age as well and that was one of the places i saw great gray owls that actual winter of 83 84 Wow! Yeah, I never saw I never saw any of them there. But I mean, in the but anyway, I was there. I've been there a couple. Let me of tell you a story. Let me tell you. Yeah, a story. yeah please do, please do. So the one of the times because it was just known because I, I was a member of the the what is now called Bird Protection Quebec, but it was basically like the Montreal Bird Club, and they would host these field trips, and I would go on these field trips. You know, if my parent, you know, my parents would drop me off and then one of the, the team leaders or whatever would put me in their car with them and um, then they'd come pick me up afterwards. But one of the times we go to Nuns Island 
and we're in the woods. We're looking at these great gray owls. There's a whole bunch of them. So, you know, we follow this one, then we follow that one. And somebody not far from me reaches into their bag, pulls out a live rat or like some sort of animal from a pet store that's a rodent and puts it up in the air, holding it in their hand. And the great gray owl in the tree nearby gets up immediately, flies in the air and comes and just takes it right out of the person's hand. And it was alive. <laughs> it was Whoa. like, and that happened like, you know, I don't know, like uh, two meters from me. And I was just like, wow. That's like a tame owl. That's, that's it. Completely- this person knew, I guess, that that they could do that. I think it was a woman, in fact. And uh, she knew she could feed this this owl live rodents, and it would come and grab them right out of her hand and not hurt her hand when it came, you know? That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. There was... Uh, I think you've probably seen this clip. It was it went viral on YouTube a couple of years ago where there was, I think it was a red-tailed hawk maybe, um, and it had made a nest right on the roof of this office, office, you know, building in like a, in the suburbs of, I don't know, New Jersey, I think it was. Okay. And it was right by somebody's window. And so they set up uh, a camera watching the eggs watching the parents going back and forth and watching the and this became like a sensation everybody was watching these these beautiful little you know babies and they saw them hatch and watching them grow and oh it's like so cute you know daddy brought them some this and mommy and then there's one scene where like they bring a cat and suddenly everybody was not cool with it anymore. Like they were completely fine when it was bringing, you know, rats and squirrels and all these other things. But then suddenly it brings like this cat. And it's <laughs> like, and like now they, they draw the line like this is, yeah, that was not cool anymore. But that's amazing. I always, I remember when I was a kid, I always wanted to go on those David Bird, like bird things because they would be announced in various places, like in the Gazette and sometimes on the radio. Right. I, I was never able to go. It was it just, I, I think I, I went to maybe not run by him, but I went to a couple of them that were on the mountain. But I remember hearing all these like wonderful ones and I would always somehow hear about it too late, but, uh, but whatever. Uh, but it just, sort of just circle back to something I was asking about before. Uh, you know, there's this whole like, idea that uh, E.O. Wilson has, biophilia. Yeah. That we all have this kind of natural kind of desire to kind of interact with, uh, with the animals and plants and the other things in our environment. Um, that clearly, you know, the, the force of that is very strong within you and you're passing it on to your kids uh which is fantastic uh, to what extent do you think that is important for environmentalism or do you think that's basically just incidental and not necessary well i think it's i think it's very important you know um and i'm always you know i'm sure yours you have a similar perspective i'm always shocked when people 
aren't aware of these things who, who are environmentalists. And, you know, I, I did a master's in environmental studies at York University. And there was always, it was a big, it's a big master's program. Like there's 90 to 100 new students every year. And they're always from all different backgrounds. So some of them are actually from the worlds of biology and other types of science backgrounds. Some of them are from the arts, like I was. Uh, some of them are from social science backgrounds, and some are from uh, law. You know, some of them are interested in doing legal type stuff. So there is really a wide variety of people. And of course, I was one of those people in the group who was hardcore naturalist. And, you know, I was definitely in the minority. There was, out of us 90 students, maybe five other people that kind of had the same perspective of me as me. And, you know, there were a couple of teachers in the department who were, who were people like me, but usually those people were, were people who were actual, actual biologists. So it was their, it was their role to, or there was, there was their career to, to study these things. But it was never my career to study them. I studied them just out of my own personal interest. And when I did work as a park naturalist during that same time period in Pinery Provincial Park, you know, I was often told by biologists that my general knowledge of the natural world exceeded their own, you know, because they often specialize in one particular family or, or group of animals or uh, one family of birds or, or one species even. And um, I just, you know, like I remember uh, the only other person, you know, I mean, I remember this indigenous elder like uh, Mohawk elder from Ganawage, uh, who you probably know of because Holly uh, Dressel, who we both know, yeah. uh, him, which everybody called him the old man, but his name was Stuart Mayo. Stuart Mayo. Oh, sure, yeah. 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 So, you know, he always said, you know, that you could live many life. It would take many lifetimes to explore your little patch of ground where you lived, but there's so much to discover just in your local area about the natural world and about all the different things, the, the way everything interacts. And of course, even the way the cosmos interacts with where you live, right? Because yeah. everything. Oh, I, I've, I've had conversations with him about just, you know, one thing like, like uh, snap, snapping turtles. Yeah. About the, the behavior of snapping turtles and about where the adult females go to, to lay their eggs and why they go to those places. And he could talk about snapping turtles for like, we'd be talking for like two hours about snapping turtles. And he would talk about it with the attention to detail and the complicated knowledge based on actual observation plus like sort of stuff that he had heard from relatives and people, you know, and about how, and that had been passed down like from other elders about how snapping turtles behave in other places in North America. And it just gave him this knowledge of, and this is, you know, just one species. You could talk to him about a lot of different shit like that, but just about this one species, it was like talking to uh, like an incredibly wise old rabbi who's been studying the Torah and the, you know, the various commentaries, like, and can talk about like one passage from Exodus or Leviticus, like, and expound upon it for 
hours, you know, with a lifetime of learning and a whole tradition, like that guy could talk about snapping turtles like that, you know, or anything, which just completely blew my mind. It was just very, very uh, detailed, specific knowledge, which of course is important because if you want to farm a region, if you want to hunt in a region, gather things, you you really want like a fine-grained, uh, detailed understanding of the place and of the things that live there, right? That's it. That's it. You know, I, I remember once uh, going to visit uh, where he lived and no one else being around, um, like Stuart, his son, not being around. He was just alone sitting in his little garage, which was kind of like their, their longhouse. And we just sat in the dark and it was pretty late at night. It was midnight or one o'clock. And we just sat in the dark across from each other. It was like pitch black. And we talked for, for hours. It was such a unusual experience, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's it very interesting. And it just makes you realize um, how much more rich and detailed your environment is. And that we're just not, you know, most people have to like have a near-death experience or eat some mushrooms or get like, you know, trip on something. They, they, something strange has to happen to make them uh, realize how magical their surroundings are. I mean, the, the story I always tell my, my students is I, you know, I live right by Mount Royal Park and I go there, you know, every single day pretty much. Uh, and I, I have been going there my whole life. And a couple of summers ago, my uh, cousin of mine and his wife came into town, and they are avid uh, birders, uh, really hardcore. You know, you you'd love them. Uh, you absolutely love them. And they're both they're uh, they're older. They're in. He's when he came here, he's in his late seventies, and she's in her kind of early seventies. You know, so they're not they're not young. Uh, they're older, and I went. They said they wanted to, you know, go for a walk. And I had mentioned that there were um, a couple pairs of indigo buntings mm. on the mountain, as well as um, a scarlet tanager, a pair of scarlet tanagers, and a few other birds that you know piqued their interest big time. They they live on Vancouver Island. Mm. Anyway, so um, I took them for a walk in the mountain, and they. So saw all sorts of birds that I had never noticed before. And I went there ev like almost every day. Mm -hmm. And I, it wasn't like I was not paying attention. I was actually, they could identify birds just by like a little bit of a call. And they'd say, oh, that's this. And they're probably over in this tree. And so we would walk over to one of those trees. And sure enough, there they are. Like, and they would just, they could identify birds just by like seeing like a tiny bit of a wing moving between two branches and like a little bit of a call. And look, it was just amazing. And it just like showed me, and it's not because they had uh, extraordinary sight or extraordinary hearing. Um, they, they don't, they probably have, I don't know, they probably have like less, you know, their hearing is probably less acute than, than mine, uh, or they're, because they're, you know, much older. It's just that they had trained themselves to pay attention. All right. And we just normally don't 
don't do that, right? And uh, it, it was amazing. I mean, it, you must have had that experience with really great birders before. Absolutely. And I mean, it's like that for myself. You know, I, I, uh, anywhere I'm going, my ears are always listening for that, for bird song or any speck I see in the, in the, in the sky flying by. I always attempt to identify it, you know. And so, um, you know, my family, they're used to me, like my wife doesn't like when I drive the car and I start to look at something out the window. She's like, <laughs> nervous, you know. Um, but I'm always, I'm always attuned to that. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm very much aware that, that most people, that's not their, um, that's not their modus operandi, but I'm, no. and you know, and, and I find that as I get older, um, I have less time, less time to do. And I'm sure this is going to change when my kids get older and I don't have to always be, uh, watching them. But um, I find I may do less actual outings to go and look for birds where that is my only goal. But I find, you know, sometimes you're just doing something else and you notice something like we were picnicking um, on this field on the campus and uh, I saw just kind of a dash of feathers in a tree far off in the distance, but it looked like it went into a hole. And if a bird goes into a hole, it usually means that there's a nest there because, you know, there's only so many birds that nest in tree holes. And sure enough, I I went and investigated and I had to put my phone camera down the hole and then take a picture and then look at it because I couldn't actually get up there. And, um, and it was a, it was just black capped chickadees nesting, but I was able to go back and, and uh, these chickadees would, would come right up to the hole to feed their young with my, my phone right there, like right beside the, the tree. They are so strange. They, they really don't. I, I, I used to think that they would come and land on your hands um, on Mount Royal because people were feeding them and they were just becoming habituated to it. But that has since happened to me in the middle of like the woods way, you know, far away from Montreal, far away from any city that's happened to me on numerous occasions. There's something about, they they do that sort of, you know, Walt Disney, like, you know, where you're singing to the birds and the bluebird comes to like, like like, they, they, for some reason uh, will, I don't know, not be so afraid of humans. I don't know what's going on there, but. That's it, you know. Um, the, you know, I think they like like you when you talked about culture. They have culture, and some definitely have it in their cultural makeup to go to humans for food, and some don't. I think, but it, it. I think they are a very intelligent bird, and they they can analyze quickly. You know whether this is a threat or not. You know. Yeah. I think yeah, they, you but you see all these like bluebirds out at the Margaret Arboretum. Which well, that's that, that. Yeah, that's because I run a a, a nest box uh, trail. You know, um, years ago I I got the town into the idea of of buying some nest boxes and then buying some wood, and then we made a project where where scouts uh, built these birdhouses and then we put them up. But you know, uh, I'm the only one that kind of like keeps an eye on them and cleans them out every year. 
So because I do that, I will always find out if bluebirds are nesting. Uh, typically, what we get is tree swallows and chickadees and sometimes wrens. And on the rare occasion, we get bluebirds. And that year, last year, I guess it was, or the year before, that I was posting a lot of that, um, there just happened to be a lot of bluebirds around. There were three out of 25 boxes with bluebirds. And normally it's, you know, or I think it was more like four. Four out of 25 boxes had bluebirds in them. And normally you, you, you get none and maybe once you get one, you know, because the, the habitats around here are not like exactly ideal for bluebirds, but there are some spots where, where it's, it's right for them and they, they nest. So they're, they're a great bird, you know, they're. Yeah. I mean, what they, where I've seen them when my, my in-laws used to live um, in New Hampshire and I would see like lots and lots of them in New Hampshire, but they always seemed to be um, in the same kind of spot, which was like on, like if you had a field, yeah. just where a field met a forest. That's right. It would be like that. They would be there. They would be like, you would never, you wouldn't really find them in the forest. You wouldn't find them like in a swamp. You wouldn't find them in the middle of the field. They would, mainly be around like that where a forest meets a field and they would especially if there were they would make their a lot of their houses inside uh, kind of fence posts and things like that like uh, inside or you know along the sides of barns and things like that it's uh i mean what, what is that kind of is that normal or it's, it's exactly right they like where the you know often they, you know we call that the the uh the uh, echo zone or the um, the edge effect, where in in natural history or ecology in general, where two habitats meet, there's always more more animal activity and more species diversity where the two habitats meet than if you're just in the one habitat because yeah. you've got the overlap of different species. But for bluebirds, they just really like that spot. They like to be where the forest meets the field and they like some short grass. So typically they're going to go to an area where either there's some mowing going on or there are animals like cows or sheep or whatever that are keeping the grass short. So what that's do they why actually, they like what do they actually eat? Are they insectivores or? Yeah, they, they're hunting, they're hunting, um, you know, they're eating caterpillars, spiders, various insects but they're looking for those in shorter grass. And of course they're going to do some of their feeding in, in the woods and, and other places, but they tend to like to find a perch and watch what's going on in the shorter grass and then, you know, go down from a perch and catch whatever insect they see in the shorter grass. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, well, I guess it's yeah, that's pretty safe safe strategy. <laughs> they have uh, right now on the mountain. They have these birds called um, flycatchers. Something. Yeah. What is the the full name of it? Well, there's great crested flycatchers, which are is that the one with like yellow on the bottom. That's it. Okay, yeah. so they have those on the mountain this year, which I I I guess they've maybe been there all along, but. This is the first year that I've actually noticed them, and they they are amazing because they actually, you know, they, you have these moths that fly in this totally insane, erratic way, you know, all over the place, and or some of the butterflies will do that too, like a really crazy flying strategy. 
and the flycatchers will actually get those things in midair with this crazy acrobatic flying and then you know take this big chunky moth back to their nest and it's uh it's quite i watched it a couple of times on the mountain it's quite uh, quite striking but i i mentioned to you in our, our email correspondence that there's this book that i just reread by charles c mann uh, came out two years ago and i i reread it uh, with my friend alex and we we talked about it for an afternoon over the weekend it very very amazing book just very challenging in many ways it's called the wizard and the prophet but one of the things he says in there that you know wounded me a little bit <laughs> uh was he says that you know environmentalism has for a long time been especially in north america uh, has been kind of characterized by a kind of romanticism about nature and it's like oh we just need to set areas aside and there should have no human activity whatsoever and this was very central to the uh, founding of the national park the national parks in the united states and he says uh, you know there's all these problems with that view of nature one of them is that of course that those parks were not kind of virgin land there was uh, native people living in those places and they were evicted from those places to turn them into the pristine wilderness that John Muir and other people could go and love, you know, on the, in the, in the West, West of the country, especially. So there's just, there's a problem that it wasn't actually devoid of humans to start off with, but more importantly, he says that that view of nature um, actually creates this situation where people feel like, well, as long as I'm supporting like these wild spaces and I, then it doesn't matter what I do in the city or the suburbs. I mean, what do you think about that? That you must deal with this so much as a politician, as a environmentalist, as a teacher. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I, I always go back to the indigenous perspective on that. That, that humans are, are a part of nature and uh, that when, when indigenous people were first here before Europeans came, they were actually creating the abundance of wildlife uh, through their, their different activities, one being uh, the setting of fires, you know, when they would, um, at least the horticulturalists, would start fires in order to clear uh, some forested land in order to grow some crops and then also they would, uh, at the same time, enrich the soil because of all the, the ash that would, you know, all the, the burnt wood and, and so on would, would enrich the soil. Um, and then you had, um, again, you had that edge of right? Can you just go over that once more? Because I think a lot of our listeners are probably not aware of that practice, how they, they, how they would get the ash into the soil. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they would... You know, they would um, they would set fire to a place, uh, and then you know they would, you know, if it did, if it didn't burn everything, then they would come down and they would try to break it up into smaller bits and burn it some more. And they knew that that if they did that, they, it would enrich the soil. I mean, I don't know if they they thought about it in the same terms that then Western science 
came up with as to how you enrich the soil and what the building blocks are and so on, but they, they knew um, that, that it would play a role. And, um, you know, they were, you know, the Mohawks, at least around here, were, were, were planting corn, beans, and squash. And, um, you know, that it created that edge effect where you would have a diversity of habitats, right? And you would always have that really interesting zone where one habitat meets the other. And they, of course, there was areas where it was good to grow uh, crops and do horticulture, and there were areas where it wasn't. So they weren't turning everything into a big agricultural monoculture. They, there was, and of course it was small scale, uh, but some Mohawks claimed that, you know, uh, huge swaths of the Montreal Island were, 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 were growing corn and, and, and other crops. Um, I don't know, you know, I'm not totally sure about that, but, but this was what was going on. And it, it was the ideal habitat for, big game for for deer uh for example which was also an animal that they hunted pretty pretty uh, actively and um you know there was a real stewardship or or understanding of uh what what you should or shouldn't do in order to create more of what you wanted and they were they were forest gardeners they would see a, a tree that that had an edible fruit or an edible nut in this place and they would want more of that closer to where they were living. So they would go and grab some of that, those seeds or those nuts or, or pull a baby tree up and they were, they were influencing the, the landscape. So, you know, I think when, when, when you have this attitude of that, that true nature is without humans, you're, you're missing, you're missing the point. And, um, you know, there's always going to be places on planet Earth that are devoid of humans because those places are inhospitable or they are so remote remote that they are impenetrable. Uh, I don't think there's many places like that, but they do exist. So to me, there will always be these romantic places where there are next to no humans or so few humans that it's like that. But I think we have to try to work with nature co-create with nature in especially the places where we're heavily populated and you know there's guys like john todd who's that eco ecological design guru who really writes a lot about that and says that you know big tall buildings should be considered scaffolding to grow uh, plants on and and um, i think there is a a happy medium there somewhere where you can you can encourage and it, and it is it is the case anyways I think to a large degree, because now at least in the cities, there isn't a big hunting culture where people, you know, back in the old days, people considered raptors like eagles and hawks and owls as things they wanted to kill. And, and they saw them as a bad part of nature and they saw coyotes that way and they saw wolves that way. But now we have the attitude that, no, these are part of nature and so these animals are coming back in the cities in large numbers. And some of these animals are, in fact, choosing to use these habitats. Merlins, which is a type of, uh, which are a type of falcon, which is in between the size of a peregrine falcon and a small little American kestrel. They, when I was young, they never nested in suburbs or cities. They were always a bird that you might see if you drove up to the Ottawa Valley, like to Petawawa or something like that, or you go to the Laurentians. Now, there's many, many pairs nesting all through the West Island. 
Um, and this is wow. true across Eastern North America. This is a bird that has suddenly decided that this is a good habitat for me and I thrive here, you know? Yeah, my mother saw, she lives in Verdun, like not, not far from the river. And she saw one of them like just outside her window. It was sitting there like on a, I don't know, on a power cable or whatever, like on a wire. And she had, it took her a while to identify it because she just had no idea that a, a Merlin would be in such an urban area. Like it was, uh, but yeah, she is saying they're, they're now kind of, they're around, right? They're, uh, well, there's, uh, I saw this, I think it's one of those BBC nature shows, but they had, um, you know, the usual, they like, do they do it thematically? There was uh, grasslands, deserts, you know, tropical rainforests, uh, you know, Arctic. But then the last episode, which I thought was the most fascinating one. I mean, I liked the whole series. I can't remember which one it was. It's like, you know, one of those like planet, you know, be whatever ones. Um, the last one was all on urban environments. And it looked at everything from raccoons in Toronto to um, the fact that the, these large, uh, I think they're like a kind of an otter, like a really large otter, um, maybe one of the biggest ones in the world, ha had come back to Singapore and they were like being protected. And so you have like all of these huge numbers of these giant fish-eating otters that are living right in downtown Singapore <laughs> and are eating fish out of the, and then they, they looked at uh, the highest concentration of leopards in the world right now is uh, in the suburbs of some Indian city with 25 million people in it. Yeah. And they're, they're hunting, you know, various things like pigs that eat our, our garbage. And they're basically, you know, cohabitating with us and then it was i was looking at these huge catfish that have taken to eating pigeons and and then it looked at um, at the uh falcons falcons living in um in new york uh and in big cities all over the world and yeah it's just absolutely amazing and how all of these animals are evolving to uh deal with urban and suburban environments because uh that's where the action is we're you know taking over a lot of places that's I, it. There, yeah there are viable food sources for these animals in these areas you know? and so that means that also we have to kind of rethink how we get along with them so one of the i guess an edge case that i that i always ask people like you is what do you think of um something like koi wolves that are kind of coming into urban areas all over the all over eastern North America. They've uh, been spotted in the Montreal area, and this is um, koi wolves. Of course, will eat eat squirrels. They'll eat raccoons. They'll eat uh, stray pets. <laughs> they'll eat garbage. Um, do you think we should find a way to cohabitate with koi wolves? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I have seen um, large coyotes around here, even, and um, 
everyone, every coyote I've ever seen was not one of these ones that, you know, was unafraid of humans and was coming up to humans because that does happen occasionally. But I think that's just a, you know, sort of these are isolated cases. But, um, you know, I was learning from this expert animal tracker named um, Rob Baker, who is actually the the drummer in the band Red Rider for the first uh, four albums of Tom Cochran and Red Rider. He was oh, wow. <laughs> the drummer. But later on, he he left that. He left the music business completely. He doesn't play drums anymore at all. And um, his thing is is animal tracking. That's his passion. And he's learned from some of the best animal trackers in the world, some of whom are in, like, the New England area. Like the guy who wrote um, one of the best animal tracking books, which is na- his name is Mark Elbrock. I have uh, – I'm just looking at my bookshelf. Yeah, Mammal Tracks and Signs. That's what it's called. Um, and uh, he was teaching me how to track animals in the wintertime in Los Alorm. And I remember we were tracking um, a coyote. In fact, there were times where we would track one coyote and it would turn into three because they, they, they always put their back paw where their front paw left. And then if three are walking in a line in the snow, they, they put their paw in the exact same spot as the one in front of them. So it looks like one animal. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden they separate into three different tracks and you're like, Oh, it wasn't just one here. But anyways, one time we were, we were, we were tracking a very fresh tracks of a coyote and it was starting to really haul ass because um, the, the, the distance between each footprint was farther and farther. And that's because they're, they're going so fast. The track, there's a kind of a, a rule in tracking that the faster the animal is going, the narrower the track will be and the further uh, distance the paw prints will be because they're kind of leaping through the air in their, in their, in their sprints. Yeah. But anyways, anyways, we're, 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 you know, we're following this, this, this coyote and he's obviously like just ahead of us, but he's really like just the fact that we're following him. He doesn't even see us or she doesn't even see us. Um, you know, we were, this this coyote was was quite uh, fearful of us and you know at the very end of it what was funny is when we came back to where our cars were parked just before then we looked at our old snowshoe tracks because we were wearing snowshoes and eventually that same coyote had had come around behind us and started to follow us from the from or at least (laughs) use use our trail i mean um but um, you know, I I uh, I think they're a great uh, thing to have in the in the in the natural environment, and, and we need them to also prey upon deer because deer uh, can get overpopulated in this kind of um, habitat, and and uh, if they don't have if there's no hunting pressure from humans, then um, you know they they can devastate the what the um, indigenous flora of the forest because they'll eat all the trilliums and all the the other interesting uh, wild plants that come up. Um, I didn't know that. They eat trilliums. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've even seen, you know, the bite marks where they just ate one. And, uh, you know, in you know, I saw this in Pine Ridge Provincial Park where I was a park naturalist, so I understood it very well there, was that they had lost a lot of their really amazing native oak savanna flora. And it was because deer had become so overpopulated. And um, 
they in fact started a deer hunt, which was really for the local indigenous people. It was near Ipperwash. And so that same indigenous community was invited in every year to do a big uh, deer hunt. And they, they knew exactly how many numbers they had in the park because they would do this deer count every year where volunteers would walk through the forest 20 feet apart, uh, one line like the length of the or the width of the park going through the forest and another line the same width of the park. And so as they came close to each other, every deer in the area would eventually break the human line, one or the other, and they would count it. So um, wow. Neat, uh, a neat way to count deer, but but anyways, th- th- there it was successful. They they had reduced the population of deer, and there were still tons of them. They were everywhere. I saw them all the time, um, but, and they were starting to get their native uh, flora back. You know, yeah, it's amazing. I I learned something. It was in uh, that same book I was telling you about, the Wizard and the Prophet. He mentions, and I I was so amazed by this. I went on a deep dive on the internet and was reading all, all sorts of stuff about it. But uh, white-tailed deer, um, the Virginia deer that we see around you know, all over the Northeast of North America, they were almost to the point of extinction. They, had, they were hunted so much that by, I think he said like around 1900, they were, um, they were eradicated from all sorts of um, states and regions of uh, North America. And now they're like a pest. I mean, you go down to where my uh, Annalisa's parents are living now in New Jersey, and you drive around anywhere in New Jersey, and there's just carcasses all along the highway. And you see big... Uh, you know, you'll see like 10 of them, 15 of them. They're just everywhere. They're, it's ridiculous. I mean, at that point, but I, I didn't realize that explains something because people have told me where have all the trilliums gone? And they talk about how there's all these spring flowers, uh, bloodroot, um, great white trillium and the red trilliums and, and all these spring flowers that they saw when they were kids and they see, and I don't understand why they're all gone. And yeah, that makes sense. It's the deer eating them. That's it. I mean, it's, there's probably, there may be a little bit more to the story than that, but that would be a huge pressure uh, would be uh, the deer eating them for sure. Yeah. It's like one of those things right, where they say, where they reintroduced the wolves into, was it Yellowstone? Yeah. And then it had all these, amazing putting an apex predator back in there it they kept the deer populations down uh, they kept i think beavers as well or something else and they they kept and that had all these it just changed the entire landscape the ecosystem all sorts of things came back uh, soil erosion stopped around you know mountaintops it just you know amazing it's that's it that's yeah. it you know, and then I, I often think of that indigenous perspective on how each animal uh, has instructions that the creator gave them. And, you know, they have to play their role. They have to carry out those instructions. And it's humans that forgot their original instructions. And that's why they're, they're so in such a, um, you know, a bad way these days is because of that. And, um, 
so to me, it, it makes so much sense. The wolf was there needing to play that role. And if you, if you take one thing out of the equation, um, you know, and of course something always, always fills it, you know, and I always liked what, you know, Farley Mowat always, he always said a nature of horrors, a, a vacuum. And as soon as it's, it's, it's open, it, it fills it, you know? So sometimes it's even invasive species that end up filling a vacuum that has been, um, you know, left, uh, left uh, empty by, by the departure of something else. Yeah. Uh, a uh, perfect example of that on the mountain is Greater Burdock. Uh, they, they, uh, I got into an argument with Lamy de la Montagne a couple of years ago because they were uh, going around and ripping up Greater Burdock. Uh, it was almost, it was really creepy. It was like this sort of ethnic cleansing or something. They like they were going around ripping up all the Greater Burdock and then kind of burning it, you know, like. Uh, and, their reasoning was, well, it's an invasive species. But the thing is, is like greater burdock, it only really lives, uh, does well in distressed soil. Um, it only, and it's as soon as the, the area gets a little bit uh, more healthier, that you just don't see greater burdock anymore. It just, it, it might sprout up, but it immediately gets consumed by, aphids and pests and things like that and it just it it needs a very special distressed environment and while it is growing in a distressed environment they send down really really deep roots they bring up all sorts of minerals and nutrients from far below the surface and they spread those uh, you know i i did an observation once of one mature greater burdock plant that was, I think it was like three or four years old. And so it was, uh, you know, it would be about like seven, eight feet tall when it was full grown. And just one of those plants is providing enough uh, nectar to, to just support an amazing amount of butterflies and bees and wasps. And it's just, just kind of producing constant amounts of uh, nectar all day long and like for all these winged pollinators and so it is it's an invasive species but it is contributing mightily to the to the ecosystem and then um, as soon as the ecosystem is healthier it just dies and all of its minerals and resources can um, can be taken up by trilliums and other things right <laughs> so it just seems like if just demonizing invasive species just because you've decided that they weren't there first, they're not pure den or something like that, uh, is uh, seems to me like uh, a problem, right? There's there's that book you probably have read it called uh, "Where Do Camels Belong?" Oh yeah, I've never read it, I, I, but I'm interested. Yeah, it was recommended to me by somebody I, I had on the podcast. Um, a couple of months ago, and the a herpetologist from Ontario actually, and she she recommended this. We got into a conversation about invasive species, and she said, "Oh, you need to read this book. Uh, Where do camels belong?" And it's all about invasive species. It's absolutely amazing. But he he talks about how you know we think about camels as being from 
you know, the Middle East or North Africa or something like that, or maybe uh, in the Mongolian desert or something like that. But actually, like camels initially came from, uh, if I remember correctly, they came from South America, migrated to North America, went over uh, the land bridge, went into Europe and Asia, and then made their way down into uh, into Africa and the Middle East, and then went extinct um, in the Americas, po- possibly because of uh, human indigenous hunters hunting them to extinction, although we're not sure, went extinct in Europe, and then ended up, you know, being this thing that is a that we think of as a, a desert animal. And it just gives all these examples, the author gives all these examples of uh, birds and animals and plants that we think of as being very characteristic of a particular place and says, well, no, actually, they come from a totally different place. And then, of course, humans speed this up. And so uh, you don't, we think of uh, the Irish and their potatoes, but potatoes are not from Ireland and pasta is not originally from Italy and tomatoes are not originally from Italy. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, some invasive species are a real problem and, and I wish they weren't, they didn't exist, but whenever they, they, they hatch these plants that try and control them or introduce another foreign species to predate upon them or, or give them, you know, some sort of, disease or something like that it usually backfires and just makes the problem worse so i just think you know you gotta just wait for nature to rebalance itself you know yeah so what are the it in the last so far this summer or maybe maybe i'll extend it to the last to the last like two or three years what are the uh, five most as magical moments that you've uh, experienced with like the most amazing things that you've seen in the last let's say like a top five in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, well, uh, I discovered the Adirondacks over the last five years, which, you know, surprising to me, I'd never really, I know my parents took me down there when I was younger, but I, you know, I don't, it's, it stopped happening after a certain age and, you know, I, I don't have any like real clear memories of it, but you know, we started going to this campground uh, called uh, Meacham Lake, not far from the Quebec-U.S. border. And um, it's only two hours and a half from here. And I find once I'm there, I feel like I'm in real wilderness, even though it's a pretty comfortable camping area with all the typical amenities. I still feel like, and I, and I discovered that the Adirondacks are something like the largest protected area conservation-wise, in all of uh, the United States. And they're not, they're not in one park. They're kind of like they have all these zones and, and what's permitted in certain zones, you know, like you, you can drive an ATV in this type of zone, you can't in this zone, you can canoe in this zone, but you can't, you know. So there's a whole variety, and, and it seems like that landscape is, is just, it's beautiful, it's wild. And, um, you know, it, it off, you know, it's so inter, you know, I'm really into viewing places in terms of their bioregion. And when I look at what I consider to be the bioregion I live in, the Adirondacks are part of that. And I'm, I'm 
you've probably heard of the Y to Y initiative where they were trying to connect, uh, what was it, Yellowstone to, to the Yukon and have. No, like a, I did not. I did not hear about this. What is so it? It was like an initiative to try and connect Yellowstone, I think, to not to just Yoho or something like that, but to 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 eat right up to the Yukon where the whole Rockies would be this interconnected. They, were, they would make sure that there was wildlife corridors connecting. Oh, yeah. This is the thing where they would have, like, they made bridges that, like, moose and things can walk over. For sure. That would be part of it. But the, the main idea was to, to get any lands conserved that would have not been conserved yet to kind of make sure there will always be a linkage. And so the other one they talk about is the A to A, which is Adirondack to Algonquin, because the Algonquin Park is a big protected area, not so protected because they, they do allow logging in that park. Um, but, um, you know, it is nevertheless a pretty wild area with a lot of biodiversity and a lot of mammals, large mammals and so on. So the idea would be to make sure that there is a wildlife corridor, which would be more difficult because of the huge population uh, in Southern Canada and, and then, you know, uh, the roads and the major highways and so on, but to connect the Adirondacks to, to Algonquin so that animals could migrate between the two places, you know, and so their gene pools would be more diverse and so on. That would be really hard. I, I, I agree. I'm picturing it. It seems like that would be really hard because there's all – all of that part of southern Ontario, it's all farmland. It's just like straight farmland from, and then of course there's the Great Lakes in the way. For sure, but you could yeah. you could have some of the. I guess you could have some of the uh, corridor still be farmland. You know, like an animal could, in theory, like a bear, cross cross some agricultural land to get to another wooded area. But you know, but anyway, so so that's a project that I. I, I always thought it was interesting and, and, you know, I never really explored the Adirondacks, Adirondacks. So I didn't just go to Meacham Lake. I went to other parts, you know, down to the Saranac Lake area and Tupper Lake. And I thought that was a, a beautiful place. And, and I, I was so surprised that there were so few mosquitoes there compared to up here when you go camping, where I find mosquitoes are such a problem. I find the Adirondacks, even at night, they're so, there's, they're so tame that where there's their numbers. And I feel like it's, it just has to do with the ecology there. There's some sort of ecology where enough of these, these mosquito larvae are getting eaten by fish or frogs that, that they're not as big of a problem. So just in general, that landscape for me, discovering it over the last five years has been magical. Um, another uh, amazing thing. Um, well, you know, you know, doing this this um, this Netsbox program, which I've done probably since 2012, so maybe a little bit more than five years, but still every year that I do it, because I'm watching the boxes and I check them when the eggs are in them and when I do check the boxes, sometimes the female tree swallow, for example, will not leave. It'll stay there while I open the box and look inside. <laughs> and, That's amazing. And I mean, you know, they're a beautiful bird. They're they're emerald green. They have emerald green uh, um, uh, feathers that you know, in certain light, they they shine with an iridescence. And um, you know, seeing them so close, of course, opening up the boxes and seeing baby birds, 
um, seeing the eggs when the eggs are in there all alone, they they just look incredibly amazing, you know, to me. And of course, I keep all of this data. I keep a log of of all of uh, for each box, and I number the boxes. So every year, I can go back and I can look at what bird nested there, like what species of bird, and how many eggs did they lay, and how many birds do I think were fledged from that nest. And I do know from what I've read that it does increase their populations having these boxes. So I feel like it's a worthwhile thing. Um, so that would be another one. Is it um, because they can't, like predators can't get to them? Very that's quickly? right. Uh, well, well, it's it's that the main issue is that all the old dead trees that birds used to nest in typically get cut down because they're dangerous or there's just less of them and there's less old, big, dead trees in general because the land was cleared, you know, a hundred years ago. And, you know, so a lot of these birds nesting in tree hole, uh, nesting in nest boxes is to replace nesting in tree holes. So you're, you're always, um, you're providing a place for them to nest that maybe otherwise they would not be able to find a place to nest. And especially in agricultural areas, you might have no, no dead trees in any direction for as far as the eye can see. And you just have whatever hay growing or corn or something like that. But if you put up a box, suddenly the bird can nest there and can hunt in that area yeah, and feed their, feed their young. So, so that's been a great experience. Um, using my phone and having a little attachment on it for macro uh, shots, which is this kind of dinky thing from Walmart. Sometimes I've been able to buy these little lens things that you just kind of attach like a paper clip. That's how you take those pictures? The, the macro ones, yes. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Go, go, go to a like Walmart. Go to a Walmart or some other like. I'm going to uh, like get this like today or tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And you, usually, usually it comes in a package with like a wide angle lens, a fisheye, and, and, uh, and a macro. And uh, it, funny enough, it was working it's better like, on my. Is it like 10 bucks, 20 bucks or. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes less. Unbelievable. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. And, and it was working well with my iPhone 6. I find my iPhone 7, which I had to buy because I, I dropped my iPhone 6 into a into the lake recently. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, I had a hole in my pocket and I put phone in the wrong pocket. So. I, I put mine in the washing machine a couple of years ago. or I, I, Either I did or Annalisa did. I can't remember. Put in the, It was in like my jogging pants and it went in the washing machine. Oh. This is terrible. <laughs> That's it. So I had to replace the phone, and the, the phone has a better camera on it, but it doesn't work as well with the uh, little uh, clip-on macro. It has a bigger lens, so it just it just the dynamics of it don't work as well. So I'm not even sure if I'm going to still be able to use that little little thing as well anymore. But um, but that you know, but if you look online, there are other ones, and I would never spend more than eighty bucks on one. Yeah. But I'm sure you can get even better ones that are. Are, are designed specifically for your type of phone. You know, I'm definitely going to get one because I I used to go around with uh, I, I had just like a digital camera, not a really fancy one. Yeah, um, but but I just I kept breaking them all the time, 
Right. And it's just so, I, I would break them in all these different ways. I would get sand inside them. I would, and it just got to be annoying. But one of the things I really miss about, uh, and just switching to using just my phone is so much more convenient. But the thing that I always miss so much about the digital camera is the macro. Because I used to be able to like take these amazing like macro shots with the digital camera. Uh, but now I know this this can be done again. This is <laughs> so gonna, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get one of these things. So that's your number three, I think. You want what what's yeah. uh, other top so, I guess number four, I mean to this this year I, I took a slow motion video of um mayflies in a mass, mass swarm, you know, uh, when they all hatch out at the same time and they're yeah. only alive for a day or two. And this was as the sun was going down just off uh, off the shore here in San Ana Bellevue, looking towards Lake of Two Mountains and Oka. And um, I just was so mesmerized. And, and because they move so fast, because they're insects, if you use the slow motion video um, feature on your, on your phone, um, suddenly they look so much more graceful and they look like birds. And uh, I was just amazed at, um, I mean, amazed at looking at it without the phone. And I often have to remind myself, put the phone down and just witness this amazing event in nature. Don't try to like eat it all up, eat up all the time by trying to, to record it. But, you know, as a filmmaker, cause I, I was trained as a filmmaker and I've made a couple films, um, that's always a, a, a big, uh, a big thing driving me is, is record it, you know, like film it, um, you know, use it later on in some sort of project that you're, you, you're going to make. Um, and for the longest time, that's what I was doing was doing a lot of wildlife uh, cinematography and um, essentially, uh, you know, just discovering that as well. And I guess the last thing, would be what? Um, well, you know, uh, my friends, they started this little forest school, which was going on in the Arboretum. Now it's kind of ended. But uh, because I was being asked to do natural history education for these little kids, and of course the adults were listening as well, um, you know, it would force me to try and come up with something neat to tell them about. And of course I know a lot of stuff already, but you know, I discovered how to look at a tree and and know when you're looking at the growth from last year, you know, like, so what part of the branch grew last year? Let's say you're looking at it in wintertime or in the early spring. You know, these are things I never considered before, you know, never considered like looking into and understanding. And so it's those little things. I always, And I feel that as a teacher, right? I'm sure you can identify with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you want. If you want to know something, teach it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and there's also, there's all these new technological things. Like my sister Felicity recommended to me this, uh, this app called uh, uh, Picture This. You know, and there's a bunch of them, but it, it identifies plants. And you just like, you just take a picture of the leaf or the flower and it, it identifies what it is. And it's amazing. Anything, this one, you know, little app has expanded my knowledge of the plants that I interact with, you know, around the Montreal area. 
and probably by three times. And which in, which app is that? It's which called app? it's called Picture This. Picture This. Okay. And you, uh, it's I think it's like about like twenty dollars for a year, and it is worth it, it is worth every penny. It's amazing. And then there's other things like you probably know. There's the Cornell site for birds uh, for identifying birds and then there's uh, bugguide.net for insects you know but there's it's amazing how uh, technology has uh, made it possible to kind of expand these natural tendencies because I mean we're an intensely social species and we always want to kind of share with our friends like, hey I saw this really cool thing right and you that's you, you sit around the campfire and telling stories and and so the technology at its at its best, at its worst, it you know tears us apart, you know Twitter and everything. But at, at its best, it allows um, the, this natural tendency to want to share your you know the things that you see with other people and the stories. It facilitates that. And so I've I've become part of this whole like uh, my wife calls it. She's like, oh, are you looking at herp porn again? <laughs> uh, it's like <laughs> I'm like this whole kind of network of people on Instagram that are just most of them are amateurs. Some of them, um, like like Jessica, the herpetologist I had on the podcast a couple months ago. Some of them are are professional, but a lot of them are amateur people who just really love going out in the woods and looking at finding salamanders and frogs and snakes and turtles and stuff. And they take pictures of it and they post it on Instagram. And there's this whole kind of like uh, scene all over North America. Uh, these people who are just, uh, and it, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it just seems to me like that's like the best use of the technology because they're, um, they're not. Uh, and it also has provided just an amazing resource for uh, for professionals, for scientists, because now you just have like this army of you know, thousands and thousands of what they call uh, citizen scientists who are identifying where birds are, you know, where the how the frog population is doing in Pennsylvania, how the rattlesnakes are doing in southern BC, right? Um, it just provides all these data points, you know. Which is is really helpful, but but you're you're part of that. <laughs> That's it. It's I, all, I, I share all all by this really natural human desire to just you know wanna hey look at this cool thing. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, sort of, I'll, I'll finish off with uh, with this question. Pretty heavy, I guess. But what do you think? is the main kind of challenges facing uh, environmentalism and the green movement and all that stuff in, in Canada and the United States, perhaps we'll just, we'll limit it to those two countries um, at the moment and for the next, you know, foreseeable future. Well, I, I, you know, I might, I do have a concern about COVID-19 uh, um, changing changing things and, and uh, you know, uh, preventing um, people, pe you know, preventing people from getting involved in activism and, um, you know, putting a chill on things and, 
and I worry, uh, I would worry about that. But at the same time, I know that, you know, a lot of people are spending more time at home in their own neighborhoods, in their own natural environments. And they're, they're because, you know, they don't have any choice. They're, they're noticing things more plants growing in their garden, the trees on their property, the, the, the wildlife on their property and, and, and what have you. So, you know, I, I think there's a side to, to this COVID-19 experience that's probably positive in terms of noticing nature and caring more about nature. But I do worry about, you know, the, the lack of social engagement with each other, which may stop a lot of environmental organizing, you know, uh, because if people are more likely to to stay home, if you will. So I, I really hope that this doesn't go on for much longer so that, uh, that you know, we can get back to, to that, that work. Um, but, I mean, I always think that things will probably get worse before they get better, but they will eventually get better. And um, I am an optimist, and I do believe that... There is a bright future, but we've still got some dark times ahead. And, um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios, right? Maybe the earth would be better off with less of a human population, and maybe that will happen. And that'll be good for the collective whole of, of nature, humans and nature. Um, but if, if that's not the case, then, you know, obviously there has to be a real shift in how we um, power our communities and, and um, you know, but I do, I do feel that there needs to be a spiritual shift, a spiritual cultural shift. And that that's what hasn't happened yet. Cause you know, we know all the science. I don't think there's anything left there uh, to try and convince people. We just need a spiritual shift in, in a critical mass of people to shift it in the other direction. And then once that happens, and if it happens on a big enough scale, perhaps a global scale, then I think uh, we have a bright future ahead of us. Well, that's a perfect place to, to end. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll definitely have to do this again in the future. For uh, sure. I really enjoyed myself, John. Yeah. Like a good mammal, go, go take care of your young. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. You too.